Uh, hi, I'm Faith Erin Hicks, and you're listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. games games left to me they just went into this weird almost like an anti-artistic place of the car racing games and football emulator yeah. and call of duty and medal of honor and all that which i you know i love all those games i'll play them all with it it just didn't turn me on say the way some of uh, tim schaefer's work with psychonauts and stuff was much yeah. funner to see explored or the insomniac guys doing jack and daxter and stuff Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Justin Connors. <laughs> it felt like, I don't know if you listen to Nerdist, but that's how every one of their, yeah. their uh, episodes start. It's just like they're, in, it just starts mid conversation. That's okay with me. We can start doing that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like most, most people don't give us an opening like that. So like, yeah, while he was talking about the rats, I was like, this is how we're opening the show. Yeah. Does he, does, when he actually comes on to the, intro part of it though do they are they just talking as it comes on completely or do they intro it yeah it, it just no it just comes on like he does a he does a recorded intro over the beginning right and like, then this uh, is episode whatever you know yeah he yeah. does like you know sponsored by blah 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 and these yeah. are the live shows i've got coming up and he's like oh i'm gonna go play you know now we'll play that interview for you and it just comes right in and it's funny because with a lot of the people, mm-hmm. you can hear them saying, oh, just let me know when we're going to start recording. And, he, and Hardwick's just like, oh, we've been recording. This, we're already like 10 minutes into this. And oh, like, wow. oh, oh, OK. That's awesome. <laughs> and he just starts right in the middle. Like they just have like a intro conversation kind of thing. Well, that's how we're going to do it from now on. <laughs> yeah. We're just okay. going to copy. We'll try. It. We're just going to copy <laughs> the Nerdist. That's the way this <laughs> podcast is going to be. Excellent. 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 Um, so you can find us on Twitter at the GBB Podcast, <laughs> Facebook.com slash the GBB Podcast. And today I registered a domain name. <gasps> no. And funny story, Jamie knows this already, but I'm gonna tell tell everybody. We were discussing what our donate domain should be, and we were like, greatbigbeautiful.com. That'd be pretty cool. And then I went and looked and I was like, oh, here it is, it's available. And so I registered it and then I got this confirmation email to for me to confirm that I did it, and it says "Brait" with a B, big beautiful. And I was like, "Oh come on! I didn't just pay, you know, fifteen bucks for Brait, big beautiful." <laughs> <laughs> and then I like at first I, you wrote that with a B, and I thought it was like break. And I was yeah. like, "Oh, break, big beautiful. That's pretty awesome." <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But luckily, our domain provider was very generous, and they canceled it and refunded the transaction. But <laughs> so, what is our new domain? Our new domain is thegbbpodcast.com. So it oh, that's up so original. Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> you've never heard me say the GBB podcast. Ever, so so it's well, there. it's we're we're only closing in on episode 100, so yeah. it's about time we got a website, right? I figure we'll have it launched by episode 150 at least. You know. <laughs> So now I'm looking at really cool um, 
really cool WordPress themes that I can customize. And I'm, my background is web design, so I'm sure I'll be able to figure it out and we'll get something good up. Awesome. Get something good for you to visit. Maybe share some article. I don't know what we're going to share on it. We'll see. Um, well, the episodes. Yeah, well, yeah besides that, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe you'll get a picture of me and a picture of the robot that is Jamie. <gasps> you never know. Yeah, you're not putting my picture up there. No, no, no. We'll we'll put your robot picture. Okay. For sure. I'm excited. We finally have a home on the internet. Yes, and I'll have the coming soon page up. Um, I'll probably put it up tonight, and you can go on there, and I'll have it so you can sign up to be informed when the when the page la- officially launches. How exciting! Treat, we'll have to have a treat. party. We'll have to have an online we, party, like a like a web launch party. <laughs> like, we're so old that we get excited about the start of a new website, and people don't even go to websites anymore. Right, right. No, it's all about <laughs> social media profiles. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's all right. You know, don't don't steal our thunder. We're happy. We're happy. We have a place on the web. I, I'm looking at it as. <laughs> seo for for search purposes there you go there we go yeah this week we're talking to doug tenaple and he has had a fantastic career he's a great artist and he's known for some things that have been around for his entire career like earthworm jim (laughs) he's known for some things that's a great way to put it that's what Um, what we'll say he's you know he does some drawings and writing well it's kind of appropriate because he is known for lots of different things Uh, he's probably most well known he is the creator of earthworm jim um and if if you don't know what earthworm jim is shame on you (laughs) um it was started out as a video game um super nintendo and genesis is what it came out on uh and he it was a character he created uh he worked on the the original game and its sequel which were like really really well regarded games of that era and those consoles there was a i think it was on for two seasons there was an animated series about mm-hmm. earthworm jim that's what i remember the most i full disclosure never had a super nintendo I had the original Nintendo yeah, and I went straight to, I went straight to Nintendo 64. Yeah, so same. I missed out on what is probably the best Nintendo console that ever existed. I, mm-hmm. It's it's a sore spot. Let's not let's move on. <laughs> um, so the Earthworm Jim animated series is what I remember the most. Um, and I just remember loving the heck out of it. Uh, but that's I mean, that's just one thing that he's done in his career. He's worked in graphic novels. He's worked in a lot of different video games. He's worked in film. He's worked in animation. He's currently the showrunner for the um, VeggieTales, uh, VeggieTales in the House, uh, which is one of those joint DreamWorks Netflix productions. Um, it's three seasons are already on. He's he mentions he's working on the fourth season, which is likely going to be the last. Um, yeah, he's just had a long and incredibly um I want to say incredibly fruitful career and Mm -hmm. successful, but he's, he'd probably be the first one to say that, you know, it's been, it's had its ups and downs and it's just a great conversation about art and creativity. Oh yeah. And he, he touches on different, you know, elements required for his creative process. And it's just great. It's really, if you're a creator or interested in being a creator or anything like that, if you're interested in fun, you will listen to this. (laughs) Who's interested in fun? Are you interested in fun? I am. I have it on my Facebook as one of my, Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so, anybody else interested in fun? Take a listen. Yeah, if you're interested in fun, keep on listening because we're about to play an interview for you right now. How do you how do you keep rats as a pet? They're, oh, they're the best pet. Really? The best. Yeah, yeah. I could run upstairs and get them for you. Man. No, it's okay. <laughs> but they're fat and huge, and they're and they are. One of them is a little more 
friendly than the other. I mean, they not none of them have, none of them have ever bit us. I mean, we hold them every day. And the yeah. kids, the four kids, they just pass them around. They are super smart, super gentle. They're not as, you know, affectionate as say a cat or a dog. So they're not gonna, you know, try to nuzzle up on you or anything, but they'll fall asleep in your arms. They, my wife cradles them in her arms and they fall asleep in her arms and oh. they can do tricks. They're relatively clean. They're uh, don't do they smell though? Uh, if you don't clean the cage, you know, more than once a week, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You gotta but I guess any week. animal, any animal would do that. That's it. It's any. That's what I'm saying. What I'm trying to do is really give my kids a placebo to keep them from making me get a cat or a dog. <laughs> so, if you know, it was six dollars. So if he dies or if he has a giant tumor, I'm not going to spend three thousand dollars for a surgery. We're going to feed him to a snake or something. <laughs> it's a it's a brilliant. You'll see. It's a brilliant move. If you can live oh. with. Rats, though. I mean, not, not many people can do that. <laughs> yeah, they have a really bad reputation. There's no reason for it. They're really cool. I, I had a rat in high school. How long yeah. do they live? About th just over three years. Oh, so it's not that long. It's not bad. I mean, it's, you know, I love them. <laughs> They're really easy. Really easy, really fun compared to the cat or the dog situation. Right, right. right. Just walking and picking up giant poops and mm -hmm. total stink when they poop. I mean, you know it in the house. And, yeah. yeah. And they live for like, you know, could be 20 years. That's what I mean. I'm not, I'm not ready for a 17-year commitment on a dog that I <laughs> yeah. hate you know, or a cat that I hate. Our cat just died uh, like last year and, you know, our kids. Oh, I'm are, sorry. Oh, that's okay. And She was 16. So, I mean, it was a long time. I got her yeah. a long time ago. And uh, my kids have been bugging me to get a new cat. And you know, we've been holding off and holding off. Don't do like, it. <laughs> like we want to get one, but like, and I think about it and I do the math and I was like, Oh my God. When I got the cat and I was like, you know, I, I that thought went right through my head. I was like, you know, she could still be alive when I have kids. I was like, oh my yeah. God, I'll be so old. Yeah. And now I'm yeah. doing it again. I was like, she could still, the cat could still be alive. Like when they go to college, you yeah. know, like, oh yeah. when I retire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's nuts. Oh, anyway, Doug, thank you for so much for taking the time to talk. <laughs> My pleasure. Um, I, you know, we wanted to just cover a little bit of ground here. Your career sort of does span a lot of ground. Um, but uh, I mean, you've worked you've worked in a lot of different media. You know, you've done video games, graphic novels, film, TV. Um, yeah. Creatively, though, I'm wondering, is there one medium that really f lets you flex those muscles, those creative muscles more than another? Oh, comics by a mile. Really? Yeah, by a mile. Why? Why? Uh, you know, video games is has a medium problem in that media video games does not exist as a storytelling medium. Mm -hmm. It exists as a game first. So it's it's kind of like if you went to watch a football game, and you said, "Well, how's the story on this football game?" Well, actually. It's not that great, but this is a great game. Yeah. And that's what happens in video games is you can still have a great game without a great story. And so if you have a great story in the middle of a football game, like, hey, what's that quarterback's backstory? Mm -hmm. and, and he overcame cancer. And, oh, it's a, it's a great game and a great story. You can take the story out and the game is still fine. So that's, that's one reason I push video games out as a storytelling medium, as my favorite storytelling medium. Uh, today, there's a lot more pressure because of Hollywood for them. They put more story in, and that's just kind of more of our experience, but it, it doesn't have to be the, 
the other thing is the amount of people it takes to do all these other mediums. So when, if you're going to make a video game, you're automatically, you know, funding it. You're getting, you're dealing with money. You're dealing with crew. You're, you're having to get other people to pull off your vision and stuff. And that's, that removes certain freedoms. Mm-hmm. And the same with the TV show. If I'm doing a TV show, we are crewing up. I'm doing VeggieTales in the house right now. I'm the showrunner. We have a 22-person crew here in Tennessee. We have some crew members at DreamWorks back in L.A. And then we have a whole animation production crew out in Vancouver that actually do this CG animation. And again, it's something where I have to ask permission from eight people, you know, to do uh, what I can do by myself if I did a cartoon by myself, say. So graphic novels, I don't I don't have to ask anyone's permission to do anything. <laughs> In fact, it's it's kind of instant feedback where if I go, you know, I, my books are put out either through image or through Scholastic, uh, the mm-hmm. graphics imprint on Scholastic. And I'll, I'll, both companies and both editors will almost let me do anything I want. <clears throat> so it's kind of like I go, uh, well, I think I'll have this character have their head cut off. And they can go like, well, do you really want to do that? <laughs> it's almost like they're letting me hang myself if I make that yeah. choice. So I'm really more of a responsible self-editor in the graphic novel. I, go, ah, I don't want to do that to my audience. I don't want to do that to the company that's publishing it. And this would be really fun to do if I didn't own this comic. <laughs> It'd be really neat if it was someone else's money. But maybe I won't, you know, cut the guy's head off on the first page or whatever. <laughs> so you start to be a, a, a little more sober. I don't want to say sellout because uh, when I'm considering my audience, which I believe is why the work exists in the first place, it's not selling out to consider them and, and not want to just sure. – totally lose them on every page well, sure. it's, it's, you know sure. so comics so comics is that i mean it sounds like that's also the most satisfying work that you can do too yeah by far yeah um and my least known which is <laughs> which is also interesting because my my tv shows just because they're a bigger mass media format and video games will always be bigger than my comics so it's another kind of thing i love about comics is if, you know, fame is, uh, does not have a good effect on me. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, I would go so far as to say it doesn't have a good effect on anybody, but that's just my pride trying to provide cover for my own thing. <laughs> and, and so comics, I, I'm, I feel like I'm almost anonymous when I do my comics and I, I kind of feel better in that space. Yeah. It's well, it's interesting because, you know, you say... The, the comics that you do, um, they're, they're your thing. Like, you own them. They're your characters. They're your creations. Um, and w- I mean, we'll talk about VeggieTales in a little bit. But when you work on something like that, they're not yours. You know, so yeah. I mean, take, yeah. even take, take DreamWorks, take Netflix out of it. You know, take the corporate, you know, you get notes and feedback from them. Take that entirely out of it. Even if you were just set free, they're still not your characters. You know, you still yeah. don't, it's, you don't, you feel a different sort of responsibility to them. Yeah, yeah. it is not mine. Yeah, the execution of it is mine, mm-hmm. and I'm very proud of our execution on that show. It is amazing to me, and in some ways, there's low ceilings kind of built into what you have to do with this thing that's given to you. 
it'd be no different if they gave me loan the Lone Ranger or gave right. me, you know, underdog or something. You would have this certain ceiling that you could not transcend above. And when the writers jump bump up against that, they go, Oh, what do you mean they don't allow time travel on underdog? Yeah. What a literal. And we we come up with that on VeggieTales too. These normal rules that they uh, force those rules on me, and usually I'm pretty complicit to go along with them and work within those uh, boundaries. We did great things within the boundaries that we have, and in the end, I, I don't apologize for the show because I think it is great. I think if someone watched it in general, they didn't. Mm-hmm. They do enjoy it. Yeah. Is would it be fair to say but, that you but find? It's, but it's not mine. It's still. Not it's not mine. yours. Yeah, it's not yours. I mean, and that's sort of. I can see why working with your own characters in a format that really lets you tell the stories that you want to tell is preferable to working, you know, with somebody else's toys in a sandbox that you can't really change the the border of. You know, it's like you're sort of you're you're confined to what you are allowed to do with those characters and those stories. Yeah, and that drives me mad because I I'm a I'm a pretty opinionated guy and I and I feel like my beliefs are pretty well informed about what makes a character tick and why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. And then oftentimes, if I disagree with the people paying the bills, you know, yeah. it doesn't end well. I'm, sometimes it's not pretty when I go in and double down and go, no, this is what magic is in story. It has always been this, and this is what it needs to be. And they'll just, you know, we're not going to do that. Yeah. And, and I just, Kind of throw my hand. I have a. I'm not. I'm a sore loser. Yeah. And so I mean, all that, all my worst arguments I've had, and the worst uh, demonstrations of me as a person, go away when I do comics. So I, I just feel better about it. It's just. Uh, yeah, and they all, And I'm spoiled. You know, I've worked on my own stuff for 20 years. You know, since Earthworm Jim, I've really uh, gotten to pretty much make a living on my own stuff. And now, uh, you know, there's been opportunities on other video games and other TV series and stuff. And I'm kind of, eh, eh, eh. Veggie yeah. Tales came at a time when I really felt like it was a unique fit because I'm an evangelical and DreamWorks came to me. I'm like, look, you're an evangelical. You want to look at this thing? Yeah. It's, you know, it's the biggest pickup of anyone's life. It's three series and it's going on Netflix. And so the execution side of it sounded very interesting yeah. to me. But just the art side of me is, you know, it, uh, I, I do my own graphic novels on my own time, even with a full time job. Yeah. Is that do you think, you know, knowing your personality and knowing like what you just said about you know how you work best? Is it because when you work on graphic novels, you get to just sort of work in isolation? It's just you at a I don't know if you work digitally or not, but it's, whether it's just you at a computer or you with, you know, paper and, 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 and brushes. I mean, is it because you can just sort of focus and don't have to listen to anybody else? Yeah, it's and it is both digital and analog stuff. It's not that I don't I don't want to put it off like I don't have to listen to people, Jamie. It's not quite that. Uh, because I listen to my editors, you know, it's mm-hmm. class and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's more um, the thing that is rare about me and the thing that I do best will be allowed to shine so it's the thing that i'm best at is going to come out yeah and that does come from me comes from inside of me and when i have to work with other people i have to set that aside and be a member of a team and i'm you know i i I get 
the other thing is I've, I've worked with enough bad team members that I know how to work on a team too. I know how to put my stuff aside sometimes and go, guys, I know everyone disagrees with this and this is the way it's going to be. And we're going to do it with gusto. Like that is just the way that you act properly sometimes as an, as an employee and a team member. Yeah, none of that on at my art table. It's way more intimate. It's way more how I feel. I just I I have I experience I experience joy when I'm doing a page and cracking a story and putting it down, even when it's miserable and a slog. I mean, you know, these are two hundred something page books, and at the end, I'm just out of love with it. I hate it, and the worst day of that is better than <clears throat> most days I've worked on a video game. Yeah, because I'm just huh. I, the problems are very much about what the thing is about. It's like, oh man, is the story point good enough? Is this character right? It's never like, how am I going to make my budget? Because yeah. it doesn't, I'm, I'm not getting paid up front to do it. I just, I do it. And then I go and uh, get it published and then try and uh, get the movie deal on it. So that it's right. all, all the money and all the business side of it really happens after. Hmm. It's pure up front and it's really cool in that way that I, and I feel like it's one of the rarest jobs I'll ever get to do too as a storyteller. Yeah. I mean, I want to, we're definitely going to come back to the graphic novel stuff, but I wanted to ask you about video games. And when you were sort of in the, in that industry full time, um, you know, like when you were, when you like say when Earthworm Jim first came out, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that that was probably impossible to keep up with the technical developments happening at the time. You know, I mean, that was, it was an era when things were just being developed and growing so fast that you yeah. could probably start a game, and by the time you were finished, the console had changed. Um, yeah, was, yeah was, absolutely. And was that was that challenging to work in, or was it sort of? Did you see that as as just like, okay, this is a challenge we're going to overcome, and it's it's you thrived on that. Yeah, definitely not me. On <laughs> <laughs> thriving among technological changes, answer <laughs> my own email. You know, I came at video games as a player. Because I've, I, you know, I played them and loved them in the '80s. I, you know, I came to them as an addict, and I, um, I was much more a member of my audience when I was putting on those shows. You know, as a, as a video game guy, and the tech, yeah, because I, I, I the only reason why I got to work in games was because I got there when it was so primitive that mm-hmm. I. I didn't stand out as bad. I was doing little eight by eight pixel animations for other companies and just so desperate out of college to get any work that I just, and I loved it. I mean, again, they let me sit in my office in my home and just started paying me. You know, it was a tiny amount. It was maybe 12 grand a year or something like that on my first couple of video games. And I just loved it. I thought, honey, we can live on this forever. And I thought that was all it's going to be. These little eight by eight pixels Little did I know that within 10 years, <laughs> we'd be filling out compact discs and yeah. then eventually Blu-ray. That was when it left me, was when it jumped to compact discs, when it went to Skull Monkeys on PlayStation. And the budget started going up. You know, we, in the 90s, you'd have a tiny team of like eight guys. And this came from the tradition of video games, you know, in Europe being like three guys when they put their games on a cassette, even one guy. Yeah. would be the whole game top to bottom. Earthworm Jim was an eight-man team in 93, and the budgets were so doable. 
like that budget was like 750 grand or 800 grand from Playmates to Shiny to do that game. Very, something very reasonable to grasp when your salary is $80,000, let's say, <laughs> and your salary is a big, the biggest part of that chunk is just kind of rent and eight guy salary and you're done. And then suddenly the Mario games are getting made and they're getting $30 million salaries <laughs> and $30 million budgets and Tomb Raider and companies that are ran by people like me, kids, mm-hmm. artists, guys that just have dragsters, sexy video game programmers. No one went to business school, mm-hmm. none of them. And they're given a business that is suddenly greenlit with a $20 million budget. And they just fold. They'd go out of business or they'd be terrible or they'd be, you know, there's all these different ways to go wrong from a business side. It was a very immature and a bad launch that at the same time we were able to fall between the cracks and do little clan animated games and a 2D platform of Earthworm Jim that that felt like it came from Mars because there was nothing else being done on that platform like yeah. it. But to the animation department at Shiny, which is Mike Dietz, Ed Schofield, and I, and we all worked together, and we had some sympathy from Dave Perry because he had worked with Mike Dietz and Ed at Shiny to a point that he learned to love cartoons. And our, we came from a love of cartoons, like cultish love of cartoons. <laughs> like we would study Warner Brothers, you know, um, Blu-rays one frame at a time to see what Chuck Jones was doing with the drawing to make, you know, an overlapping action. And it made us very well qualified to start reducing those animations into a video game, which is, you know, very restricted on the number of frames you can do. But we saw which ones Chuck Jones leaned on the most to pull off the illusion of Warner Brothers animation. And we just stuck that in Jim and suddenly, boom. Or Mike Dietz had done it with Dave Perry on the game before with Aladdin when they did Aladdin. Mm-hmm. They were able, they knew what the minimum amount of frames to just cheat, 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 and and pull that game off to make it look so fluid on a on a cartridge that had no business being that fluid. Yeah. That's what made our games really blockbusters was a really neat marriage between art and programming. And then just lucky opportunism of business that was irresponsibly throwing money into these illegit teams. Like they just went, they just fund us right and left. That's how it got made. And then it kind of, and then the big business stuff just terrified me. By the end of Neverhood, we had done three games. Uh, Neverhood was a success, barely, mm-hmm. barely. By far one of our biggest successes to date. And it's huge and legendary now, but at the time, it was very difficult to get that game sold. And then Skull Monkeys after that was our first PlayStation game. Then we did Boombots. That was just a colossal disaster. Our last game. And after that, I said, I don't want to be a game company anymore. I know that. I may go and design for other people, mm-hmm. but I'm done here. And just then my graphic novel started selling movie deals for like a half million dollars. And it was kind of going, why am I <laughs> I've only gotten burned on video game deals. Why am I in video games when they're just throwing money at me to sit at my table and just create wacky stories? So I did that for like 10 years. Yeah. It was, uh, I'd say I, I didn't leave games. Games left me. They just went into this weird 
almost like an anti-artistic place of the car racing games and football emulator yeah. and Call of Duty and Medal of Honor and all that, which I, you know, I love all those games. I'll play them all, but it just didn't turn me on, say, the way some of uh, Tim Schafer's work with Psychonauts and stuff was much yeah. funner to see explored or the Insomniac guys doing Jack and Daxter and stuff that I think is yeah. a little more interesting. I mean, it sounds like I, I, I'm not, you know, super in tuned with the industry, but it sounds like things have, I mean, we, what you're talking about is when it was, you know, in its primitive state and they were just, people were just throwing money at different teams and different companies just to see what would stick because there yeah. were not these established companies out there who really knew what they were doing. But nowadays it seems like some of these games, you know, when you look at like Warcraft or the Call of Duty games, like they're, you know, like Bethesda, the game, the company, it's like there are these huge powerhouse corporations that, that this is what they do. Um, But I'm wondering like, how hard is it still? And I don't know if you still have your finger on the sort of like the pulse of what's going on, but how hard is it to stay relevant in that industry as, as a designer? Well, this goes to, to a broader discussion about all mass media. Yeah. And what is the artist's job to stay relevant? Is your job to reflect your culture, drive it, judge it, destroy it? You know, all those are acceptable things to do. Yeah. It depends on the artist. So I don't want to put this burden on these giant companies and say they must use their business to make more art, you know? I I love that Call of Duty is successful. I love that, you know, most games are successful. It's good. I'm not asking them to make, to be, I'm not gonna be, it's not like, it's stupid when a gamer goes, I won't be happy until they make something that, 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 you know, bombs, (laughs) you know? Uh, I wish more stuff was made. So in addition to what's out there, I wish artsy guys had a little more of a shot. And that's going to always come from independent sources, unless I just think companies like EA, they'd be so smart to kind of side invest in great talent that they had confident in and to give a long leash on a bit on a little video game. You know, I think like Slither.io is a great game. Pokemon Go, I mean, these are great inventions and neat things people explore outside of you know, the normal realm and they're great. And I I just wish there was more of it. It's it's weird to me how dumb games have gotten and how dumb movies have gotten too, for the same reasons. Yeah. I was going to say, it's not limited to to video games. I mean, what you're saying, it's the same sentiment that you hear from, you know, I mean, I'm sure you know it from a lot of animators, you know, saying like, why can't some of these companies just invest in a small 2d film do traditional traditional hand-drawn film, you know, what it was like, it would compared to the, some of the other films they're putting out, the budget would be a fraction and yeah. take a risk. You know, I mean, it's sort of like yeah. they're in the position to take those risks. Whereas the people who want to work on those projects don't have that kind of budget or they don't have the outlets and the, the means that the bigger companies might. Most businesses don't get where they're at successful, mm-hmm. successful by being squirrely with their money. Mm-hmm. So they're calculated risks and they hope they get lucky. And every executive is terrified to green light the next game. It is so expensive and all of the burdens on them, all the risk is on them. And 
you know, and they still have to keep their teams engaged with something creative or they'll start losing people, you know, they'll hemorrhage uh, crew. And that's their whole value is the ability to pull off a game. So, but, I'm, I, so that's one side of it in their defense, but you have 20 entertainment companies whose job it is, is to create successful series. 20 of them turn down stranger things. Yeah. You're, they're not doing their job. Yeah. I, I, and, and maybe, or, or maybe the pitch was so bad that no one else saw it but Netflix. Or maybe, you know, I'm trying to find out, just understand why, what it would look like if that walked in my office. Maybe I'd feel apprehensive about it, too. And Netflix, just that was one of their lucky stabs they took. But it, but it shows how random it is to actually calculate and find a hit. Not only the actual game pitch, but the team. I mean, your team can just put out a dog. And it costs the same to make the dog as a success. Yeah. So I'm, you know, I, I resist. I don't, my judgments are very general. They're not specific. I'll never mm -hmm. call out EA specifically. I will call out games in general. I don't call out individuals as you're a scumbag and you're a crook. I, it's more in general, they're crooked. Yeah. <laughs> in general, the execs aren't doing their job. I'm not calling out which one. It's funny. I actually hadn't heard that twenty studios turned down Stranger Things. Funny. I mean, it, it seems like you know you you hear all these stories about Star Wars now and how Lucas could not sell that yeah. pitch. Like no, yeah. everybody turned it down, and he just the mm -hmm. only person who believed in it was Spielberg, and he you know didn't really have pull with the studio at that point. And it seems like, and it's not an isolated case. You know, even after Star Wars, there are plenty of other you know franchises or stories or films or books or whatever that turned out to be massively popular, massively successful, but still went through a terrible time convincing anybody with the money that this could be a good thing. So it's interesting that you say that about Stranger Things because I didn't know that. It's like, is nobody learning those lessons? Or is it just that they're seeing so many pitches that it's hard to really distinguish among them? It's definitely that. I mean, they, yeah. they see a lot of pitches all day. Yeah, mm -hmm. I, and I'm one of them. I, you know, I pitch a hundred shows, and they get turned down, and then one gets picked up. So they just see, you know, their pitch people come in, and they can't greenlight everything good, everything they like. Even it's got to yeah. be so out of the park, crazy, and that's where it becomes, you know, John Madden football. Yeah. Well, that gets a green light. Yeah, you know, and then. You know, the other risky stuff doesn't. And, you know, artists can't be babies. We can't be babies either. You know, we're, we are capable of putting together a business completely independently in America, especially. I mean, nowhere else in the world. It's like, dude, if you want to make a 2D animated cartoon and you're a bunch of 2D animators, leave your studio and make a, make an animation studio or shut up. Because mm -hmm. in America, it is possible. It's still dangerous and risky. They're still resentful that some guy who earned his money will not pay for their creative expression. And this goes back to why I keep retreating back to comics is mm -hmm. um, all those those talks kind of go away. It is a weakness of those industries that they will innovate. You know, or when they do finally make an Iron Giant, it's a flop. Yeah. One of the greatest movies ever made. Yeah, no joke. And, 
and trash, you know, I'm not going to name trash because I don't want to piss off studio, but trash <laughs> they make uh, often succeeds. And that's, that's the dance we're in. It does so, not, it's not encouraging though, as an artist, as an artist, what's encouraging is what I draw on my desk. Well, I think it's two two different issues. You know, the fact that a lot of these companies are losing money is because there's so much more out there right now. There's a lot more competition than there ever was before. But you know, the fact that you can put out a bad game or a bad movie and, you know, Madden gets remade every year is because they sell and because people buy them. And so then it comes down to, well, are the, are the executives greenlighting those projects? Are they really making the bad decisions? You know, they know what the public will buy or is the public only buying those things because they don't have a choice? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. We, our tastes are bad and that's why we're given bad product that we eat. <laughs> that's why McDonald's sells however many billion, you know, worth of food and why they can make a pornographic animated movie and it'll outsell, <clears throat> you know, some, mm -hmm you know, the little prints or whatever. Yeah. Um, what, a, what a heartbreak that one was. But again, yeah. Netflix came in to save the day. So what is it about Netflix that makes them different from everybody else? They rock, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> I worship them like I worship Kickstarter. <laughs> Their execs tend to not get in the way of their creative content. They give them a long leash, uh, House of Cards. They, the joke on the crew is that, one, they don't know if they'll have a job next season, but two, <laughs> they just don't get feedback from Netflix. Yeah. They just go make their show. Yeah. And, and I really do think if the gamers were given leeway to do their job by execs because gamers are always better at creating games than executives are. Executives are the money, the purse, and they need to get out of the way so that the crew no longer feels like it's us and them. Because right now the, the crews are, are often uh, feel like the execs are set against them, like in spite of them. Instead, uh, they would be empowered to feel like it was their responsibility if the responsibility actually fell on them. Mm -hmm. Say, you, make a great game. I'm not going to tell you what to make. You make it. Make an addictive game. Make a profitable game. Make a great art artistry in the game. You do it. It's your job. That's what you do. You're a designer. You're a programmer. You're da -da -da. And I'd throw it back on the team. And the team usually they use the exec as a scapegoat, this exec above them. It turns them into a victim and you never get good stuff from that kind of thing. They're like, he's the bad guy and we just can't because of this, da, da, da. And uh, so I, I just think I have, a, I have a correction for the crew, but first I have a correction for the execs. Let the crew be. And that's what Netflix does. And Netflix, lo and behold, is taking over the industry. <laughs> yeah. And doing great work. I mean, Stranger Things is a, is a clunky, risky, you know, terrifying thing. You're not you're not the first person, though, to say that. You know, we've talked to a lot of the other um, showrunners for the other Netflix DreamWorks shows, and they all kind of say mm -hmm. the same thing. You know, Netflix is very hands-off. They just let us do our own thing. Yeah. Um, 
And it, you know, it seems like Netflix sort of created this new model of how we consume media, like how we watch shows. And they they really changed that dynamic from a from a from an audience perspective. But it sounds like they've sort of hit on this brand not brand new, but this this successful um, business model in, in dealing with the people who create that content. I mean, mm-hmm. do you think that's going to catch on? Like, do you think that that can bleed over to other other companies and other industries? Well, all creatives, unless they're getting, you know, free reign from their studio, would rather work for Netflix than work for a studio. Yeah. (laughs) Netflix is destroying other studios with their distribution of content and their, you know, they own whole libraries. The the network that we we all go to is no longer the main networks now. It's Netflix, Mm -hmm. Amazon, with our devices and our children, the way they watch. Yeah. They don't go to appointment viewing anymore on a Friday night to watch da-da-da. Nope. They watch eight, they'll wait for eight shows to dump on Netflix and watch them all, ba 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 boom yeah. <laughs> And so that that just changed the whole market. And, and, and that's our culture also. We demand it that way. I want to see stuff on demand, and I want to see eight episodes. I, you know, I haven't seen, I've seen two episodes of Breaking Bad, when this job is over in July, I'm going to go and watch the rest of Breaking Bad. <laughs> I want to sit down and just watch the whole dang thing, mm-hmm. 24 hours straight, until yep. I die, and check it off my list. Yeah, that's how we watch. I mean, that's how. Yeah. I mean, it's how my kids watch. My kids get frustrated if they're at a hotel or something and they see commercials because it interrupts the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and they're they're used to just sitting down and watching. You know, like we're they, this is their current favorite show, whatever it happens mm-hmm. to be, and they're just gonna sit there and they're gonna watch three episodes in a row. And and, and, the, and then they don't even just stop there; they'll watch the same three episodes twenty times. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, they watch Gravity Falls all day, all night. Have yeah. you seen this? They're telling oh, each other yeah. the plot points. And when you've seen this, yeah, twice. <laughs> Twice. Yeah, my kids are currently obsessed with Young Justice, and yeah. so yeah. it's it's the same thing, you know. It's, and then they always ask, "Is there another season? When's the next season come out?" Because they expect the next season to just dump at once. You know, they can watch twenty two new episodes yeah. all at the same time, you know. And now we expect to get you know ten thousand shows for nine bucks a month. Yeah, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that model you know came up through games. EA right now could launch a Netflix type video game channel just you know, gave you their entire, all the IP they own, all the back library of every game for nine bucks a month. It surprises me that that hasn't happened yet. Well, if they want to take over video games, listen to Uncle Doug (laughs) and and do what Netflix did. Because that's what people expect. That's what we do on when we go on Facebook. It's what we go on all this stuff is it's kind of more what the consumers want. And they'll, they'll flock to it. And the first one out of the gate will win. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, you talk about working not in isolation, but, you know, sort of being independent from what other people's feedback and being able to just tell the story that you want. Would you say that that's a, like the primary ingredient you need when you think about like what, what makes Doug the most creative, like independence, yeah. would you say, I mean, are there, are there other ingredients that you have to have as well? Well, some level of support from mm-hmm. someone who believes in my independence so my wife uh, has allowed my career to go, you know, spike and completely crash. And she still knows that that's kind of what she signed up for when she married me is, uh, <laughs> is instability. 
uh, I, I, as a, as a responsible, you know, father and husband, I would abandon this medium if it, you know, put us in a long-term crisis. There's a, I'd cut bait and go do something else. But so I, I don't want to say that like, it's an absolute that I get to do independent work all the time. It was always checked and balanced by it had to succeed at some point. You know, there were a couple of years where we, I was making 20 K a year two years in a row and lost our house in Glendale. Yeah. Uh, just, just sold it at a loss just to get out from under it. And that was part of being independent also. So on one hand you can live in a mansion. And on the other hand, you get kicked out of the mansion. Sure. That's what a lot of people don't realize too. You know, it's I, a, it is a tough row. I teach students. I teach at Houston Baptist university, some classes and I'm a, I'm on a few, uh, animation board for Lipscomb University. And when I meet students, they go, I want to do what you do. Yeah. I'm kind of like this burden, you may not be so quick. So I'm not <laughs> to I mean, they want to succeed like me. Uh, don't want to, they don't want to fail like me. Well, you know, talking about failure, I mean, it's any creative pursuit is going to be fraught with failure and setbacks along Absolutely. the way. There are no overnight successes. There are no people who just straight out of the gate make a million dollars on their first project or first idea. So I'm sure you've seen your fair share. I mean, you just alluded yeah. to, to some. I mean, but you personally, how do you push through? Like, How do you just keep going despite doors being closed in your face and people just, no, no, no? Yeah, my number one is that I love, I'm an artist. Like, number one is, you know, when I was three years old, I was, my parents would give me the, a pencil and, you know, any scrap of paper in the house that was blank and I drew. I didn't, I wasn't trying to make money. Uh, it was how I identified myself. So number one, I'm an artist whether people pay me to do it or not. And that's the first thing that really, you know, I succeed, I'm an artist. I'm a failure, I'm an artist. I'm an artist. Yeah. So I'm going to keep going no matter what I don't, I create, I invent, I like graphic novels. So I make graphic novels. I like TV. So I make TV shows. I like video games. So I make video game ideas. Not everyone pays for them. Mm -hmm. And really earthworm gym was a lucky moment where someone saw this idea and go, yeah, I think we'll pay for that. Yeah. It's, it took a businessman to, to shake down a significant amount of money to risk and make it. And that's a credit to them to, to you, know, I, you know, we kind of still need our benefactors. We still need our sponsors that will, that see someone of value, someone who maybe talks to culture in a way that they like and agree with. And then they throw them a bunch of money yeah. because you don't get the great ideas from that top businessman ever. You know, they, Walt Disney, you know, he was not the best animator by any means, but man, he knew how to pick them. Yeah. He knew how to pick them. So that's the business side going, this is where we're going to invest our money into this art form. So I need that too. I need a, I need the money side or I'm going to leave the business end of art and I'll always be just a personal artist again, like I was when I was three and I'll teach or I'll go, you know, manages Starbucks or something. I'm willing to do anything to yeah. find my family and my home. 
on the on the flip side of that though, you know, I mean, it's one thing about learning to deal with failure and how to just keep going, you know, when through rejections, but like when you're at a high point or you have a hit show or a hit project and the money is coming in, like how yeah. how hard is it to 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 stay grounded to be like, eh, any of this could slip away tomorrow? Yeah, it's not it's not hard for me to remain grounded outside of that fame thing I talked about, where it is seductive mm-hmm. to be popular, and it's a tool that you can use. So, you know, most of my opportunities, the doors are open by Earthworm Jim, mm-hmm. a success mm-hmm. I did, you know, when I was twenty seven, and I'm fifty now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just take that calling card <clears throat> and I wield it, you know, like a like a tool. Mm-hmm. And so I'm playing fame to my benefit. Uh, you know, I was interviewed to be a writer on Lost because J.J. Abrams was a big fan of Earthworm Jim. Hmm. I didn't get the meeting because I was a good writer. Yeah. A competent TV writer. I didn't get the job, but you know. <laughs> it's not, it's a door. It could have happened. It's a sure. door that a character wielding that card around. Now, I don't, care about Jim, Earthworm Jim any more than any of my other things I'm working on. Yeah. You know, so I don't, I don't buy my own marketing and go, it's the greatest thing in the world. And da, 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 da. I go, it has moved more people than most of my stuff has done, yeah. but only because they probably haven't seen most of my other stuff. Yeah. So, I, wanna, I, so I, I stay grounded with my values as I don't buy my own crap that I'm all that great or this yeah. creative genius or something i and my wife keeps me pretty sober you know <laughs> just uh i'm i feel like it's a privilege to get to work in this medium it's a privilege to get to even be an artist and create what i want you know without being thrown in jail or something so it's it's not hard to stay sober when the success comes i feel very lucky when i succeed yeah. and i succeed mm-hmm. Often it's a probably a combo of some skill and <clears throat> a whole lot of, you know, luck. Right. And you mentioned Earthworm Jim and how it's had opportunities for you. And it is 20 years in your past now. Do you do you ever get tired of hearing about it at all, or is it something? Oh else? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I was tired of Earthworm Jim 15 minutes after I created it. <laughs> And when I go to Comic Cons, you know, I'm, and I'm just trying to push books. You know, I'm trying to sell books, and, and you know, people will come up and they will just dump their life story on me about Earthworm Jim when they were five, and they're crying. Right. I'm, but do you want to buy a book? They go, no. I just, will you sign this piece of paper and draw me a Jim? Okay. And I just draw thousands of them, and I realize, you know, this guy. This is the first time he's met me. It's not right to put my jaded burden on him i I gotta kind of run with his enthusiasm and give him an experience that i i hope he will cherish you know getting to meet or you can get an original drawing of him i do my best job i can on those drawings i'm just like over it you know yeah it's interesting i mean you you said i was going to ask you whether you look back sort of at it with any sort of special pride or if it was just just another line on your resume like it's just another thing that you did and it was just it opened a few more doors than other things maybe but it's just it's just part of your past and it's not like you don't hold it up above all of it and, and like walk around yeah. and say, hey you know what i created yeah. yeah i know it's not my best work yeah but i know it is my most effective 
you know, it, it cast a deep spell because of the medium of the game yeah. that was created around it. You know, it's the game that made Earthworm Jim. It's a great game. And that's a credit to the team. That's not a credit to me. Yeah. The team at Shiny, the programmers, um, uh, Nick Jones was a programmer. Dave Perry was a programmer. Andy uh, Astor, the late Andy Astor, died of cancer, was a you know our, our big brain. The animators, Mike Dietz, Ed Schofield, Eric Saccone, um, I animated on it. My animation was decent. Uh, <laughs> the level level designers and background guys, geniuses like Nick Brody and Steve Crow. Steve Crow now works for Blizzard. I mean, these guys are they're running the rest yeah. of the industry. And they're fantastic. That's what made people love my character. Mm -hmm. And so even when they say, we love Earthworm Jim, I can't sit there and say, oh, they love me and my art so much. <laughs> it's like I get I played the game, too, and I'm a huge fan of the Earthworm Jim game. I'd be a fan of it if it was another one of my wacky characters thrown in that game. Yeah. It's a great game. And so that's also sobering on putting Earthworm Jim into context for me. It's just different. I have a different experience than what many of my fans who, you know, they want to relive when they're five. Yeah. Exactly. But what it was like in the nineties to have a simpler, a better, simpler game. Mm -hmm. It was pretty straightforward with a little bit of character, not much story, you know, not didn't have to have a lot. It was just kind of, it was very much kind of Tex Avery moments of humor that we were just kind of throwing in. Yeah. And they, thought it was really fun and funny. I don't, I, I do know I created an Earthworm Gym the day before Earthworm Gym and I created one after and those did not get into games and no one saw them. Like I create characters every day, just constantly worlds, characters. And my audience has seen maybe three of them. Yeah. That's gotta be aggravating though, right? Uh, I mean, I, I make them because I love making them. Yeah. And then if you're lucky enough to trick a business into executing on one of them, that's <laughs> that's a rare, that's a unique art form. It has nothing to do with art. <laughs> Salesmanship and being able to pitch and the right place at the right time and addressing an audience and whatever. And it's much harder. Yeah. Much. It, I, it's out of my control. So I don't, I don't, I learn not to care about what's out of my control. Yeah. You um, switch gears for a couple minutes here. You you said that you've got a team there in Tennessee to do the Veggie Tales, which I, I, is that the only team DreamWorks team that's not out in California working on the Netflix show. Yeah. So how did yeah. that work? Like how did how did you trick them to let you have a team where yeah. you lived? <laughs> well, they were. This is on the early end of their Netflix deal. Uh -huh. They got like twenty series, and we were the first. So we were the canary in the coal mine. That was, yeah. you know, the beginning was a disaster. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, Big Idea, which, you know, originally controlled VeggieTales, is out in Tennessee, out here in Franklin, where I work and live. And DreamWorks uh, took pitches from three different creators and my pitch won. And they just said, oh, this is the show. Doug, will you show run? I didn't think it would even work. I didn't think what I was pitching would work. Will you be a showrunner and move out to Franklin, Tennessee? I have no family out here, no connections at all. I'm out here on Mars. 
and <clears throat> for the biggest pickup of, of my life. It's 78, 22 minute episodes. What, you know, an episode a week is launched and an episode a week is finished. There's a, there's 36 episodes in production at once wow. with no break. Oh. So there's no season end until the this thing is done. I've been on this thing now for three years and it'll be done on in the fourth year next July. And I agreed to do it. I'd never been a showrunner before. I've worked with great showrunners, so I'm just copying them, all my showrunners I've worked with. And um, we started hiring crew. So we took a couple of locals that were already working on VeggieTales out here in Franklin, and the rest I hired from around the United States. Kids out of college, uh, some of my buddies who'd worked on Sock Baby as one of the editors, some of my independent stuff. Friends, uh, Terry Taylor, who did the music on Neverhood, did the music, writes a song every episode. So they're friends, people I can lean on. Mm -hmm. We geared up quick and hit the ground in production and just started doing it. Now, three years in, these kids that were just like beginners who'd never written anything before. And on the, in that first season, we had Michael J. Nelson from Rift Tracks and Mystery Science Theater was my lead writer. Wow, I mean, he's, okay. he's an old friend of mine. We got some some muscle where we needed it, and then the rest were like kids learning from the muscle what to do, and now they've got huge, extensive portfolios of work behind them for working on a Netflix series, and and we have a very good reputation at Netflix because we are not there's no drama with our show; it just gets done <laughs> like a clock, and we're providing just a a fire hose of content to blow through. <laughs> DreamWorks and Netflix, and that's what they want, is like a fire hose of content. Yeah. So it's work. It's working. It was weird. It just, I lucked out, you know, again, worked. Show, show running, though, is a totally different type of creativity from writing or, or doing or drawing. Is yeah. it, was it hard to adapt? Was it hard to learn what you needed to do? And is it, do you like doing it? I don't like doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm good at it. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't like doing it, and some people don't like me, but they also <laughs> like that I'm good at it. Yeah. Uh, I I know how artists, what makes an artist tick, obviously. I am an artist. And on the crew, even, I'll do some character designs, background designs. I'll do some writing. I direct the voices. Mm -hmm. I'm, so I'm a voice director also. And I, just, I have that skill set pretty well ingrained in, ingrained in me by being around so much production. And I have very strong uh, opinions on how to treat people uh, up and down the ladder with dignity. And uh, all I'm trying to do is empower them and unleash them and get people out of the way to let them do that. Mm -hmm. And it, it worked. That's my unique contribution. I don't, you know... DreamWorks, I don't think, has an intention to keep us open after this project's done. And it is because we're out of house. They've hired much of my crew, many of my crew, back at L.A. And they go back, you know, yeah. so they'll offer jobs to whoever wants to go back and the rest will stay here. Maybe we'll do something independent afterwards, who knows, or do nothing. I might just go back to do comics. Hmm. I, I don't think that I'm out of bounds saying this because you mentioned this specifically when we met out in san diego but 
most people don't even realize that VeggieTales is a DreamWorks show. You know, they think of DreamWorks or DreamWorks on Netflix and, you know, they think, oh, dragons and their dino trucks or the Shrek spinoffs or whatever show that comes to mind. They almost never will think of VeggieTales. And I think that's also partly because DreamWorks doesn't push it as one of their properties as much as they do their other shows. Yeah. Um, Is that just something that you just learned to live with or, or is that still frustrating to you? not frustrating i get yeah. why why it may not be uh one-to-one with the dreamworks brand um it's not that they're ashamed of it it's just uh it has to kind of run itself yeah and do its own thing you know it has huge name recognition i mean there's nothing mm-hmm. there's a few things more famous than VeggieTales. even people who haven't seen an episode know what it is mm-hmm. and okay. And so I'll take that built-in marketing any day and how dream, what dreamers wants to do with it is really none of my business. Even Netflix it's it's none of my business, what they want to do with it. Or even if the audience uh, shows up or not Mm -hmm. is not my business. My job is to make a true good and beautiful show as best I can with the resources I'm given. And we do that in spades and we're, and we're of all of Germans 20 series we're their least expensive series, Mm -hmm. least drama, on time, on budget, every time, like a clock. And that's my legacy as a showrunner I'm very proud of. You should be. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk newts for a couple of minutes. Um, sure. I love newts. I love My kids love newts. They, I've, I've got them here and they pick them up. They tell me everything that happens in the book. They just, you know, we go for a drive and they'll tell me, they'll relate the entire story of the book. Um, you've done a number of books with graphics now, graphics and Scholastic. Yeah. So what's the pitch process like for you? I mean, do you, you, you mentioned that you have a lot of freedom and you can do whatever you want, but, um, do you just, you know, call them up and say, Hey, I got a new idea. Yeah. I, I, you know, I meet with David Saylor's my editor and Adam Rao is my main editor and they're great powerhouses at Scholastic. I, I love the support I get from graphics. I think they're amazing. Uh, I feel their support. Uh, at the same time, if I bring them a, an idea they don't want to do, they just say, we're not going to do that. <laughs> and then if I, you know, so I still have to pitch and um, Newt's is the weirdest book I've ever done. It's the the book that's probably closest to my heart and closest to me, to who I am. I've ever done. I feel like I'm uh, very exposed uh, in that book. It's what I think about fairy tale. It's what I think about character. It's what I think about story. It's a scary book to write and draw because I'm not entirely in control of it, which usually doesn't happen to my books. Usually I'm in much more control of it. How so? Um, it's a story that I, I just allowed to unfold instead of kind of dictate, you know, beginning, middle, end, this is the plot. I, because I've, it's a weird philosophy. I don't want to lose everyone, but, um, it goes to what I think about amphibians, which I'm a huge amphibian nut for those Uh who know my work. I, I have, I have a Sicilian right now in my living room, which is a rare, uh, amphibian. It's got the front end of a salamander with gills and two mm-hmm. front legs, and the back end is just a tail, no tail legs. 
Oh, wow. And I'm just fascinated by amphibians because of their transformation, which I believe is a symbol of my transformation before God. So it involves my salvation. It involves when I was five years old. It's my earthworm gym because when I was five, and I, my dad took me to a river on the Oregon, California coast, and we saw tadpoles and newts and salamanders and frogs. And I, I looked at them and, and knew there was a God. And I just thought, these are the weirdest, amazing things I've ever seen. I've been an, an amphibian fan ever since. So I, when I sat down to write Newts, it needed to be a story that embodied that fairy feeling that I felt when I was in the woods discovering this creature that blew my mind. Yeah. So I, 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 when I started writing the story, I said, this story is going to be newts. You know, it's my tribute to the wonder of life and bizarrety of life. Uh, it's, so it's everything I love in a book. Hmm. And so when you read newts, this is my goal is for the reader to feel what I felt like there it's dangerous. Life is dangerous. Life is scary. It's grotesque, tooth and nail. It's magical. It's epic. There's generations involved. And I just, and that's where Newt's came from. It is my weirdest, dangerous, bizarre story that I'm not in control. I just finished the third book that comes out next year. And um, it's insane. I love it. Yeah. No, it's, it's, like I said, it's a big hit here. And now hearing that that backstory of it, it makes makes me love it even more. So I, I love stories, whatever format they come in. Um, I love stories that really reveal the, a, a unique aspect of the creator. You know, it's it's the creator. I mean, it could be like like yours. It could be a story about newts, you know, in, in outer space or wherever it's going to be set. But ultimately, when you dig into it, it's still it's the creator putting himself or herself on the page, yep. on the screen, wherever. And I think it's beautiful with, you know, whatever the story is, it's, it, it, as a reader, you can't ask for much more than that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to be honest with my readers and, and I feel like it's why I was put here, you know, to tell that kind of a story. It's my unique, why is Doug Tenable telling stories? Well, this is why. <laughs> and, and you'll see me in all of the characters too, um, in Ghostopolis and Cardboard and Dutes. There's uh, the villains tend to be real elongated. And if you look at my, I'm six foot eight. Yeah. And so yeah. <laughs> there I'm always putting myself in the villains and there's, there's crippled people and there's always amphibians in my work just to pay tribute to them. And there's uh, a lot of skeletal references and there's uh, drama between fathers and sons, which I had with my own father. And, uh, there's always a hat tip to uh, the supernature of of God and those miraculous events that happen. That's very much me. That's my signature, and I hope um, I'm I'm all, I'm just happy and kind of surprised when kids find it and love it. I go, oh, they are really experiencing what I experienced too. Pretty much, we kind of have the same opinion of the world. I think when they agree with me, when they love my books and they love my books. So I feel like they're, we're all just kindred spirits kind of going through life and, 
when I tell the truth in a story, they just respond and I go, oh, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm, I guess that was right. That was a good instinct. Yeah. We're all just connecting through art, ultimately. Telling the same stories, telling each other's stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I listen to stories just like I would if I was talking to you, you know, over a beer and you told me about your life. Uh, and I, and by that's the other thing in, with, with me as a creator that I think might be different than some creators is I always love people more than anything I've created because people are a creation of God that blows my mind. So I want to hear their story and they're, they're interesting to me in a bizarre bizarre miraculous way everyone has an amazing story far mm -hmm. more interesting and probably in fact far more miraculous and unbelievable than anything i write and that's why everyone goes like where do you come up with such weird stuff I'm all, <laughs> this, this world. <laughs> look around and you'll see look, yeah. even wow. weirder. <laughs> it's a freak show you know? <laughs> doug this has been such a good conversation um okay. I, you'll have to come back on because you know as much as we talked about I think I feel like we could just do this all over again for yeah. another hour mm -hmm. anytime anywhere Jamie this has been amazing thank you so much well that's it for this week on the great big beautiful podcast and you know what he mentioned a game while he was talking slytherin.io yeah slither.io slither.io and since he said it that's all I've been doing what? <laughs> like while we've been while we were talking for no. the rest of the interview? <laughs> no, I, I didn't. I didn't do it. No, no. I lo I launched it up here, and it looks real. I haven't played it yet, but it looks really awesome. I've never seen it before. All right. Well, we'll have to link to have it. Never played. Start it? Playing. I I've not. I'm not a big gamer. Like I said, you know, like when I was, if I game, mm -hmm. honestly, I'm gonna sit down and do like right retro games like i'll I'll sit down and play original nintendo or nintendo 64 or something like that like i'm i've got a ps3 and i've right. and i've got a bunch of games but most of the games that i have now and that ever get played are mm -hmm. kids games you well, know? I, won't, like, I won't spoil it for you but it's pretty it's just you're a worm and you ride around and you eat things and you destroy other worms that's all it is so it's pretty simple that's pretty awesome <laughs> now that has nothing to do with our interview but <laughs> <laughs> that's okay we like pushing cool stuff and uh, i just loaded it up here and it does look pretty cool right so go check out if you take anything away you take take away that slither io is a good game that'll be my and, and subscribe to our show yes exactly so thank you for coming back week after week if, you, if you're not coming back week after week, make sure you do. Hit that subscribe button. Find us on all of the available podcast delivery mechanisms. Google Play, iTunes, those are the popular ones. And, <laughs> and you know, we're, we're happy to have you on board. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook at the GBB Podcast. And we'd love to have a conversation with you. And I'm Justin at 140 Justin Fee. Making all kinds of noise. And I'm Jamie at the Roarbots. <laughs> And you've been listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. We'll see you next week. Take care. This podcast has been a production of the Geek Dad Podcast Network. If you've enjoyed this content, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash geekdad.